I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now podcast. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection. We depend on you, our community of listeners, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com/suryadas and you can either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link. We get a small percentage of all of your purchases. Or you can go and sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. Your support will allow Lama Suryadas to continue to illuminate the timeless Tibetan wisdom. So, we began with the three naturals, natural body, remember this is the instruction, if you're newish here, just sit, just breathe, just be aware. This doesn't sound like much, but we're building something here from the ground up. There's a lot of things that it's not, there's a lot of things that are implied in this simplicity, like I mentioned last night, just being, not just sitting, we're not seat, watch, we're not seat worshipers. There's probably a more dirty word for that, but I can't think of it at the moment. But wipers or something, I don't know. But watchers, we're not. We could talk about just standing, just lying down, just walking. And those are practices as well. Walking meditation, standing meditation, lying down meditation, like when we do yoga, shavasana, corpse pose, lying down meditation, and so on. Here we're talking about just sitting in this sitting session. But the emphasis is on the awareness, not the posture. So just being is the point. And that's utterly profound, and that encompasses the whole journey right there. Anyway, we need some steps on this journey to get from here to here, to truly and totally here, as I mentioned last night. It's an infinite journey. It's an eternal yet timeless journey to let go of the past and the future and arrive in the holy and totally timeless now. So, the three naturals, natural body, natural breath and energy, natural heart, mind, as a basic instruction, beginning with breathing and arriving and relaxing. Number one, that's another schema. First arriving and relaxing, breathing, feeling, Second, intensifying through whatever technique we're using. And third, releasing. You can find this in the meditation section of my book, Awakening the Buddha Within, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, and the part about samadhi, concentration, and meditation. Three basic steps, really, to any meditation practice. 
Anyway, we're talking about this particular lineage and tradition practice here, Zogchen. So first arriving and settling and relaxing, second intensifying through whatever technique we may be using, and third releasing totally, which in a way is not different than the first, is it? So it's really a circle again, not just a linear progression. I hope you're with me. So, beginning with breath, breath awareness, as I mentioned before, mindful of breathing, not just breathing. Breathing is not a spiritual practice particularly. I mean, everything is, but if we think, as we generally do about the sacred and the profane, the worldly and the spiritual, breathing is just breathing, thinking is just thinking. But awareness of thoughts, that's meditation, that's Buddhist spiritual practice. That's a wakefulness practice. That's cultivating awareness, insight, and wisdom practice. Awareness of feelings, awareness of sensations. So awareness of breathing, mindfulness of breathing is the, the basic Buddhist meditation practice for calming and clearing the busy mind, for focusing and concentration and other related purposes like sharpening the knife on the whetstone, like sharpening the pencil so you can write with it, sharpening the scalpel, focusing the light into a laser beam. So then the laser beam can be used for different purposes, whether it's to cut through metal to an eye operation or communicate with some kind of satellite or something. So first gathering our distracted mind. That's why one of the definitions of mindfulness, sati in po the original Pali language, smriti in the old Sanskrit language, drenpa in Tibetan, means recollection, re recollecting, recollectedness, rather than being scattered, recollectedness. Remembering, not remembering the past, remembering what we're doing while we're doing it. Remindfulness. Remembering what we're doing while we're doing it and just doing it. That remindfulness, drempa. Mindfulness. Not just being here now. Rocks and logs are also here now. But I don't know they're doing that much. Anyway, they're not meditating. Maybe they don't need to, but that's a different subject. We come here to meditate, to awaken, maybe to get enlightenment, or at least to feel better. Rocks and stones don't seem to have that issue. They didn't come here to sit in the driveway like we did. So we're not just going to sit there. We're aware of sitting, which they may or may not be. I don't want to discriminate against rocks and stones. You know, we have to include everything. As Buddha said, when I was enlightened, all were enlightened, even the rocks and the trees, according to Zen tradition. That's what he said, under the Bodhi tree. That's saying a hell of a lot. But our subject is not rocks and trees. Our subject is, as always, the most important subject, which is what? Oneself. <laughs> Me, myself, and I, the three Jews of my normal refuge that I take refuge in, which we can realize is the three jewels eventually, if not sooner. So we're trying to follow this path and get something out of it, learn, reflect and analyze and, you know, contemplate and then meditate or practice, get used to it, and then apply it in life. Four steps of developing wisdom, learning, reflection, application, what is it, meditation, getting used to it, using it, and then applying it in life, making part of ourselves, grokking it. Four steps developing wisdom. So we're, quote, meditating, even if we use fancy Buddhist words like non-meditation, beyond meditation, it looks like we're meditating. So let's at least call it that, we'll get credit. You know, I don't know if you get credit for non-meditating. So we have on the schedule, it says meditation from, you know, whatever it says, 10.15 to 11.45. What does it say? Oh, even more exalted, guided meditation. We can't really say guided non-meditation because I'm actually telling you some things to do and undo. Not just telling you, don't do anything. That's a little different. That's mere quietism. That's not the great peace of nirvana. Great peace is a little different than noise and quiet. Great stillness is a little different than movement and non-movement. Especially if we think about inner peace and inner stillness, which is more of our subject. 
So in the Dzogchen view or outlook or perspective, the big picture, Dzogchen view, second, meditation of non-meditation, of just being, of getting used to it, and third, the action of Buddha activity, spontaneous activity, that's our subject here this week, and the result, the great perfection. Dzogchen means literally the great perfection, the great consummation, the ultimate completion. Buddhist pioneer Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche called it Mahaati because he was a Sanskritologist. Mahaati, the peak approach or the peak vehicle, the highest. We could call it the non-dual mysticism of Tibet, not just getting from here to there, which is the usual progressive path of Buddhism and of most spiritual traditions and religious traditions. Buddhists say in the old scriptures, crossing over the boiling ocean of samsaric suffering and confusion to get to the island or the continent of nirvana, enlightenment, from samsara to nirvana. That's a regular dualistic, means two, gradual path of enlightenment, from here to there, from samsara to nirvana, from the darkness to the light, as it says in the old Vedic prayer that Mahatma Gandhi loved so much. Oh Lord, lead me from the darkness to the light, from ignorance to wisdom, from the egotism to oneness and transcendence. You can look it up. Mahatma Gandhi called it his favorite prayer. It's from the Upanishad. Lead me from darkness to the light. Look it up. Beautiful short little prayer. But here in Dzogchen, this is based in the basic Buddhist teachings and the, of the path and the, the Bodhisattva way of dedicating this life and all one's lives to the edification and enlightenment of all, relieving suffering of all recognizing that we're not separate or don't have any permanent separate independent existence separate from others. We need others to get enlightenment because we need to develop compassion and empathy and unselfishness to achieve wisdom and spiritual liberation. So we can't do it alone. This is a very important principle. So that's the basics of Buddhism. And then in that context, now we get to the non-dual mysticism, the peak of the pyramid. Like all religions have a pyramid at the base. There's group community practice. There's like the church and the building. And then there's the spirit of it. And then there's the heart of it, the mysticism, which is more for the few. It's for everybody, but not everybody has an affinity for it. There's community dharma, and then there's like philosophical and practicing dharma, and then there's like mystical or oneness, uh, wisdom dharma. It's not all the same. Congregational activities are not the same as spiritual practice. It's not the same as mystical union or unifying consciousness. So that's outer, inner, and, and secret levels of religion or spiritual traditions. Well, so of our practice, just sitting there does not necessarily imply that we're realizing unity, unity. We might be sitting here and dozing. We might be sitting here and comparing our outfit to the one next to you. We might be sitting here and comparing our state of enlightenment to the one next to you or the one in the front of the room. You know, there's a lot going on in that brain pan of ours. It's hot. And it ain't Teflon, I'm afraid. It's sticky. Flypaper. It's a combination of flypaper and, and, and hot pan. But there's another side to it, which is like Teflon. So we're not stuck with it forever. And everything passes, as they say. So on this basis of the great path of universal enlightenment is the non-dual mysticism, the peak of the so-called mountain of enlightenment with all the different paths going towards the same peak, supposedly. Dzogchen, the natural great perfection. Getting from here to totally here, not from here to there. So non-dual or direct access mysticism. But everyday mysticism, Buddha in the backyard, Nirvana in my backyard, backyard bodhisattva, not over in some other holy land or Himalayan height. My Jewish rabbi's friends say, find God in the ashes. And they have reason to say it, I suppose. So that's a good teaching. 
seeing the light even in the shadows. Shadows are nothing but light. Again, inseparability, non-dual, not separate mysticism. So the shadow sides of our psyche also, not judging ourselves too harshly for our little defects, character defects or limitations and foibles. And we don't have to just be light, light and shadow, the whole chariotskiro of life. It's all light from that point of view of non-dual vision, unity consciousness. Zogchen, the bigger picture, the view of Zogchen, the view of everything perfect as it is, beyond good and bad. We're not saying it's great that children are born with AIDS or crack addiction. It's not good. But it's lawful, unfolding. There are causes for it. That's what perfect means. A little acceptance goes a long way towards transforming things. So the great perfection, the view of Dzogchen, implies everything perfect or the great completeness as it is. We need assholes in the world. Where would we be without the assholes? We'd be stuck. I should get a gong for that. Okay, we're getting out of control here. Back to my script. So the view, meditation, and action of the great perfection. View, meditation, action, and result. Not perfection as opposed to imperfection. But great, maha'ati, zokpachempo, beyond big and small. You know, like there's, there's um, in this world, there's small, you know, whatever comes to mind, insects or sand grains or babies, and there's big, whatever comes to mind, which is so relative, you know. Oh, big adults, or no, oh, big basketball players, no, oh, big elephants. Yeah, how about mountains? How about the sky, big? But still, the sky is so small compared to space, outer space, big. So this is the great completeness, the great perfection, beyond big and small, the totality that's all center and no circumference, no outside and inside, no, no wall. Which is one definition of God, they say, all center, no circumference, no outside. Anyway, this is the view, the bigger picture of the great perfection. And then we apply that in the meditation of non-meditation, of just getting used to the awareness alone, naked awareness, seeing things as they are, not trying to purify. In this part of the, you know, again, the whole Buddhist path includes purifying and transforming and attitude transformation and good deeds and liberation and all that. But now we're talking about seeing it as it is and leaving it as it is, accepting as it is just for the moment as Ogchen as a balance to our incredible busy-bodiedness and conditioning. Where we're always trying to do something on the treadmill of existence, the gerbil wheel of samsara. The faster we run, the faster the wheel spins, but we're not really getting anywhere, not getting higher. Just fighting for a better birth on the Titanic. Repainting the walls of our prison cell and so on, as they say, rearranging the furniture in our prison cell. So the meditation of non-meditation, of naked awareness alone, nowness awareness, the true Buddha within, not Buddha different than beings. As the Zen master sang, like water and ice, Buddha and beings, same nature, different temporary states. So, recognizing our true nature returns us to our Buddhiness, from which we're never apart to the great perfection, the Dzogchen, the great completeness, the beauty, the radiance, the gorgeous miraculousness of everything just as it is, shit as well as flowers, and so forth. Thus, the rather steep and challenging Buddhist saying, there is no ultimate unequivocal good and bad there's only liking and disliking. That's not just a Buddhist saying. Shakespeare, who had such insight into human nature, said something like that. To parse, to, if I can remember correctly, it was something like, there is neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Does that sound familiar to any of you English majors or mad dogs and Englishmen? 
There is neither good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. When Shakespeare said it, everybody goes, oh, yeah, Shakespeare. He, he wasn't just a, you know, whatever, plagiarist. He knew some stuff. He wasn't just a poet. He wasn't just a playwright. He knew some stuff. No wonder why we still have to read him in school, etc., and love him. But when Buddhism says there is no good or bad, but like, only liking and disliking, the inner lawyer arises and says, what do you mean? There's so much bad in the world we have to deal with. We can't just sit there and do nothing. Anybody have that inner lawyer? Any of you lawyers? I have it. But that's just half the story. The other half is the acceptance part. Yes. Let's change the world, young folks. And yes, let's also cultivate a little acceptance, self-acceptance, etc. Just to drive this point home, and it does need driving again and again, I think. The great middle way is not falling into one extreme or another, do nothing, or just be a total busybody like an electric egg beater out of control. It's like in your relationships. Anybody try to change your mate? Of course, for the better. <laughs> How's that been working? <laughs> but when you accept them a little bit, doesn't that go a long way to change the relationship, which is what the point was from the beginning? So of course we still work on ourselves and try to become better people and contribute to a better world. Of course, who isn't doing that except for some insane people in institutions or vegetables or people on life support machines. Besides that, we're all evolving. You know, we're all good people. We're all working on ourselves one way or another, trying to live a better way, have a better world, have better children and communities and environment and family, and, right? Of course. But what about the other part? Where's the acceptance? No wonder why social activists are usually burnt out. Because there's always more suffering. So a little acceptance will go a long way to help us all. A little acceptance has transformative magic. So here we're cultivating this great perfection side of things. To so just try to glimpse for a moment the light and the shadows. The beauty of the rain, not just complain that it's raining today. Let's remember the farmers. They need the rain. Not to mention the growing things need it. And the world needs fresh, clean water, which is becoming such an issue. So how can we say it's a bad day just because it's raining? You see, that's about liking and disliking. So here we're cultivating the great equanimity, spiritual detachment, objectivity of seeing things just as they are. So from this view of everything, quote, perfect or natural, lawful unfolding as it is, the practice of seeing it as it is, leaving it as it is, being as is. That's the meditation of non-meditation of Dzogchen. Leaving it as it is, the practice of the application, the practice, the meditation of non-meditation, whether it's sitting or being or walking or outside or inside or in a church or not or anywhere or in the bathroom or in a bank or in a, you know, anywhere or commuting in your car. Seeing it as it is, leaving it as it is, and being as is, is the meditation of non-meditation, is Dzogchen meditation. Seeing through momentary appearances, including liking and disliking, pleasure and pain, ideas of loss and gain, praise and criticism, and so forth. All the eight worldly winds, you can look it up, the eight worldly winds. All these dichotomies that blow us around, like a little sailboat in a gale. So that we stay on course, so that we have ballast, so that we don't just get tipped over, so that we can live from the heart, from our principles, not just from momentary desires and cessations and reactions like an animal. So from the view of things perfect or natural, okay, great as it is, appreciating it as it is, not endorsing it, just appreciating it as it is, seeing it as it is, leaving it as it is, is the practice as it is. Letting it come and go, not just letting go, throwing away, suppressing, repressing, no. Letting things come and go is the practice of letting go. Really, the word should be letting be, including oneself. So a great acceptance, a great equanimity, not just calm and detached, but objective clarity, 
spacious, with room for everything. Not so partial, not so partisan. Because there is nothing unequivocally good or bad. But thinking makes it so. There's just the liked and the unliked, the wanted and the unwanted. So that means everything is subjective, which is, again, a very steep statement. And I leave that for you to argue about, object to, or corroborate for yourselves. And you can ask about it. It's a great subject. That's one of the means of shunyata, emptiness, subjectivity. Everything is empty of the concepts we apply to it. Just like we have you know, national borders, but they're very temporary. They weren't here 500 years ago. We have countries, we also have individual discrete, you know, people. But that's very fluid, very changing, very relative, very subjective. You know, where do I end and you begin? It's hard to say. And maybe it's easy to see, say now, urgent Nima, the urgent moon is over there and I'm over here and there's a table in between us. But what about when you're with your beloved and, you know, you don't know who's who for some moments? Or your child, you may have cut the umbilical cord, but you're still in, so into being, interconnected with them. Where does one end and the other begin? As you parents would know. And we also, if we think of our own parents, still interconnected with them. So subjectivity, it's a great thing to notice so we can be a little less reactive and a little more attentive, objective. So the meditation of non-meditation, of letting go, letting be, letting come and go, letting flow. Awareness alone, not choosing. So choiceless awareness, not evaluating. As Trungpa Rinpoche said, not judging. Unless you're a judge, unless you're getting paid for it. It's a great statement. Unless it's your job, you know. Who made you the job, the judge of me? Who made you the judge of everything? Or the director. What did Buddha say? All the world's a stage and all the people players? I think that was Buddha. <laughs> he didn't say all, all, the, all the world's a stage and all of you are directors. Not to mention control freaks or controllers. Or auditors. <laughs> of course, we know who said that, so we don't have to mention. So from the view of the big picture, looking down on it from above, you know, like God's eye, to put it in English, how God would see it, how she would see it, if we could, I don't know, look through her eye, her single eye, her third eye, or whatever, her identity, from above. But of course, from below, down here, there's good and bad, and there's poison is a little different than medicine, and so forth. There's virtue and vice, and a lot of discriminating wisdom to cultivate and things to know about how things work, which levers to press to get what results and so forth. So from the view comes the meditation of non-meditation, and I'm stressing this because this is important. Notice we're not talking about concentration, insight, radiating rays, visualizing mandalas, hearing the divine sound, repeating mantras, I'm just mentioning there are many kinds of meditation that we're not practicing in this scheme. We're not doing those things. We're being as is. Kind of like, you know, first the Buddhist drill sergeant says, attention! And everybody goes, ah, how long is this going to take? Oh, 45 minutes? Okay. You know, in the army, they do something like this, at least in some army. We do this. How different is it? Attention. And then, this is at ease. This is the Dzogchen style. At ease. As you were. I'm sure you all remember from your days in the army. Or watching army movies and TV. Come on, I know you. I see you. And from this naturally evolves spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity. So it's not just passive doing nothing or quietism. The bodhisattva life, the ten paramitas, the panacean virtues actualized in life and so forth, generosity, ethics, effort, service, 
and everything else, the panacean virtues of the bodhisattva, the awakener, the spiritual warrior, the peaceful warrior, the bodhisattva. So this is the view, meditation, and action of the great perfection, Dzogchen. Dzogchen is not a school of Buddhism, it's a practice, practiced in um, some countries. I don't want to say in Tibetan Buddhism, because it's not just Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism, which is in many countries, the east and west now, and uh, also in other forms. It's also practiced in the Bon religion, indigenous to the Himalayas, and somewhat very much overlaps with, let's say, Zen practice and non-dual Vedanta practice in India and so forth. So, the great perfection, Dzogchen, it's not a school of Buddhism, particularly it's a practice tradition, it's an advanced or subtle practice tradition, lineage, that we find today mostly coming to us through our Tibetan teachers, Tibetan masters, so Tibetan Buddhism. Luminous, radiant Zogpachempo, as my teachers call it. So this is the view, meditation, and action, and the result, the great perfection, which is the beginning as well as the end, the ground and the fruit. So we also could talk about this as the ground, the view of things as they are, the path to get, realizing things as they are, and the result of being one with things as they are, natural, spontaneous, proactive Buddha activity, not bent, out of shape, conditioned, egocentric, karmic activity, as most of our actions, words, and deeds, thoughts are. Egocentric, karma-creating, self-oriented, even selfish, you know, to not all activities. But we're talking about here proactive Buddha activity, so one with all and everything as needed. If the wind blows, the ocean waves. If there's no wind, the ocean doesn't feel like it has to keep waving. It doesn't get bored. So natural proactive Buddha activity as needed, beneficial to beings. So this is the ground path and fruit of Dzogchen, the great perfection. It's not unlike Mahamudra, if you're familiar with that term in Tibetan Buddhism. So any questions, please? Or sharing. I could talk all morning and all day and all week, and I probably will. But the questions is the best way for us to really do this, uh, kind of work together and talk to where you're at, a little laser coaching, not just lecturing into the air. Um, you Hi. Thank you. You talked about, in the meditation, there's, I think what you said was practice, intensification, and release, or letting go. And I guess my question is, I notice intensification, but it's not anything that I'm doing. So is there a sort of a, a purposeful intensification? There could be, yes. There could be, of course. If, you, if the first step was just relaxing and, and you know, arriving and, and being there, then could come a purposeful intensification, like breathing exercises or mantra chanting or concentrating or, you know, or other kind of tools and techniques to focus, sharpen, refine, and, and maintain, and strengthen the concentration. It's just an example. Thank you. But then there's also what you asked about. Perhaps you're an experienced practitioner. I don't know. Do you meditate or something? You're saying, like, first you practice, and then there's a natural intensification. So I think it sounds like you're already in the ball game. Well, I think with, with concentration comes intensification. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So concentration is already an intentional effort, isn't it? I mean, it might come naturally because you're interested in something, but generally we say you try to concentrate, right? We're trying to cultivate mindfulness or attention. Of course, you have natural mindfulness. If something's interesting, you pay attention, right? If there's a shot, a sound, you know, you go like that because maybe it's a shot. Maybe it's, you, you need to be aware of it. It's a survival instinct. That's interest. There are other kinds of interest, right? Positive, negative, desire, whatever, fear. So Buddha said one of the greatest um, enhancers 
is the interest factor. And he didn't mean what they mean when, uh, I don't know what's her name, uh, the, the Secretary of Treasury talks about it. He's talking about the mental factor of being interested. You with me? If you're interested, you naturally pay attention, right? Like I said, if there's a, a sound that, like a shot, you go, whoop. Of course, and so do animals, survival instinct. If you don't pay attention, you have less su survival ability. You get eaten by the pre predators and so forth. So in a more normal level, just to say, in spiritual practice, if we, are if we have some aided me meditation, some uh, you know, things that support the meditation that help us be interested, like chanting and singing and music might help some people. Or quiet, or dark, you know, have a quiet, dark room, or being out in nature might help you calm down. Then you're kind of interested in the beauty, the beauty moves you. There are other examples we could give, but I think the basic example is to find a way that naturally inspires and moves you so you're interested, not so it's just a, such a struggle. Like when you exercise, if you find a game or a way of exercising that helps you aerobically, but you like, like I like playing sports or riding bikes, it's a lot easier than just going out and jogging. Hate jogging. Jogging should be made illegal. <laughs> No, it's just probably people who like that, but I like other things. When I do those other things, I don't look how much time is going, and time goes fast. When I'm jogging around the treadmill, it seems like forever. You start shaking the machine. The clock must be wrong. So that's the interest factor. So then, like, for example, there's a tantric tradition in Hinduism and Buddhism. If you throw a little sex in desire into it, look how interested you stay. You might even stay up all night because of the interest factor. On the other hand, if it's a boring night, you might fall asleep at, you know, 10 o'clock. I mean, I'm looking around the room, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, you know. <laughs> right? Boredom. Fall asleep. Interested. Awake. So concentration, if you have something interesting to concentrate on, that can become interesting. And riveting, even. So you stay longer with that, rather than just concentrating on your breath. I mean, that could be pretty, um, I don't want to say boring. That's pretty uh, neutral. So I hope that's helpful. So I'm just pointing out concentration itself is usually an effort. So my schema, yours was a little different, is first any session or any even moment, if you take five minutes out from work or whatever, say, now first you relax and arrive and settle, then you intensify with some technique or whatever, then that should you know, eventually lead to release. It's ridiculous to think you can go around intensely meditating all the time, you know, or keeping your eyes closed and being silent. I mean, that, that's not life. That's closer to death. But awareness is, could be constant, more or less. You know, I mean, it goes up and down, but awakefulness is constant. Like the clear light, even if you're unconscious and in a coma, there's still some animation, animating principle. There's still consciousness or something, right? Everybody has heard people in comas, sometimes they hear what's being said around them. It's not their conscious mind. It's not really their intellect. They don't have will. They can't move their body. They can't see or hear. Well, I'm, but they know. I don't know how. Maybe they hear. I don't know. There's consciousness, even when you're unconscious. So we need other words for this. Thus, the inner light, the inner luminosity. In Tibetan, we call it rigpa, pure presence, which is deeper, bigger than mindfulness or consciousness or awareness, which is so anthropocentric, so human-centered. Questions, please. Good question, because it touches on a big one about effort and non-effort when you practice Dzogchen. Like, how do you practice non-meditation? How do you cultivate non-meditation? Or, you know, how do you be when you already are? It's very hard to, like, practice being natural until you start to understand what we're talking about. Like, naturally, you find the ways that are natural to you when you take out some of the things that are keeping you from it, like the big should. I should be like this and that. Yes, sir. 
Um, you you mentioned uh, RIGPA just now. Um, yeah, that was a mistake. Go on. <laughs> well. It's so early in the retreat. Well. Um, Go ahead. It's too late I, to reel that back in. I, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think how I can phrase it. I, uh, my initial experience with Dzogchen came at the end of years of other types of meditation, and it was initially very powerful for me. It's a drop of ego and a very intense sense of otherness, like this experience is not my daily consciousness. And that was went on for quite a while, a few weeks. I've noticed that I'm having less uh, access to it. My question for you is, is that a natural progression, or do yes. I need? Okay. That's how it goes. That's how it works. And my question, I guess my question is, am I now trying to figure out ways to increase that intensity to the, to the way it was, or do I, uh, am I supposed to learn more about the process in order to, um, you know, facilitate that arising, or should I, you know, just forget it, and that it's just forget it, just attachment. You should. I'm emphasizing that word. Forget it. You won't, but yeah, you should. Exactly. So, see, so what's keeping you from it right now? Well, partly trying to remember. Exactly. Uh, remembering yeah. is partly keeping you from it. There are maybe other things, but let's pick on that since you brought it up. Yes, you should forget it. It's tricky though because it's. It is. Tricky, but what's the it that's so tricky, my friend? That's what's keeping you from it, that tricky, you know, self-sense or yeah, the religion, du it's, dualism, it's, it, whatever you want to call it. The experience itself is now... Right, in the yeah. way. Right, that's why we make a difference between experience and experiences, which are good and you to have, and realization. Because experiences come and go like the mist, to quote the masters, but realization is something else. Would, would the afterglow that seems to be pervading my life now, would that be considered a realization versus experience? I mean... Yeah, that's a, you know, I, we probably wouldn't use the word realization and more like, that's good, that's like positive, that's like the fruits of that experience that you're wishing to have again and the memory of which is like keeping you in the, you're looking in the rearview mirror while you're supposed to be driving yeah you're allowed to look in the rearview mirror now and then that's why it's there that's why we have memory but not all the time when you're driving that would be disaster is there, right yeah absolutely is there a technique that i can that i can use to stop that to of stop? course that's what we're teaching and talking about constantly. That's why I said it's as simple as, and then any of the so just techniques that we're talking about here. I mean, which one should we talk about? Just being rather than remembering or trying to get back to or have it again. That's one technique. Just being is a little steep. So we might need a little steps, elevators, escalators, you know, pogo stick, whatever. So that's where all the practices come in, of all levels. Pogo stick is not a bad example to bring up here. Anybody remember what a pogo stick is? Pogo is a great cartoon with a lot of wisdom in it, but the pogo stick was a fun toy. So Buddha himself said, all of these teachings are just like toys, teachings, practices, philosophies, to lure the children out of the burning house that they're suffering in, the burning house of samsara. So if anybody thinks that life is just an illusion or just a dream, then you might say, well, why has Buddha spent his whole life and millions you know, of unselfish compassioners spend their whole life trying to lure the children out of the burning house if it's just a dream? So yes, there are techniques and it's good to use them and there are, you know, Baby toys and you know teen toys and grown-up toys and boy toys and girl toys and 84,000 dharmas toys. So you made a good point. What's your name? Adam. Adam? You said, is there a technique to cut through this? 
I think that's what you said. And you made a tomahawk chopping thing with your hand. So since you're a Dzogchen expert, you probably know that the main practice of Dzogchen, which is what I'm teaching, we haven't studied Tibetan part words yet, is tregchud, cutting through. That's what we're talking about here. All this about natural meditation and just being and seeing through and tregchud, cutting through. But even cutting through is much too uh, hyperactive. That's why I like to call it, see, literally tregchud means cutting through. Or cutting through solidity, cutting to pieces. Remember we talked about subjective things and how they seem to be empty of the concepts we reify on them. You with me? So cutting through that, yes. But it's really more like seeing through. And not with the eyes, but sort of with the wisdom eye or with, you know, awareness or knowledge, gnosis. But even seeing through is too hyperactive because it's really more like being through and through. There's nothing to see through. The sun doesn't need to see through the clouds. When we say it's a cloudy day, we need to see through. The sun has no problem with clouds. You see, that's the view from above. So from the view, you don't need to cut through. From the human point of view, you know, looking up, we need to see through the clouds or have, or wish for a sunny day to, I don't know, grow our flowers or have our picnic. But all that's so relative. So balancing those two, the absolute God's eye view with the human dualistic relative view, that's the great path of Mahayana Buddhism. Not falling into either extreme of all or nothing, or it's a dream, or it's real materialistic, you know, kind of thing, or other extremes, pendulum swings. Okay? So tregchud is the technique. So I don't want to dwell on you and your many, many, many problems. I mean, you're, you're good, <laughs> you're excellent meditation experience, but I am curious. You said that you had this kind of Dzogchen breakthrough after years of meditating other techniques. So and then you just said you were in like a state, whatever you said, afterglow or spacious freedom, you know, whatever you said, we understood, for a few weeks. So did you just have this experience a few weeks ago? Or is this a few years ago? It's a few, it was a few weeks ago. It was about a month ago. And the, the initial profound experience lasted for about two, two or three weeks. And it, but it would obviously dissipate, but when I sat down to meditate, it would just arise. And there was a very distinct border between, okay, I'm experiencing a, an intense meditation and then a, wow, this is not me, you know? And then the I, I, best way I could describe it is, is if my mind normally feels like it's in my body, but at, in this state, it feels as if my body is in my mind. Yes, we'll give and, you a gong for that, Adam. You're like the first man. Yes, that's very true. So the way we relate to this kind of experience which happened in the past is to see what's keeping us from it right now. What, if anything, is keeping us from it right now? So it's like a figure ground shift, you know? Sometimes you look at it and you see two faces on the picture. Sometimes you look at it and you see a goblet. You with me? Or more recently, there's the magic eye thing where you look at it and you see, I don't know, geometric, and then you, somebody says, no, you know, squint your eyes, and then you see it's a whole other picture. Although the thing itself doesn't move. So, the big and the small, the you and the infinite, you know, the finite you and the infinite, whether you're in it or it's in you, you know, as you said, what keeps you from even having, like, like double vision, where you have dualistic vision so you can drive and have depth perception and know the difference between poison and medicine and, you know, food and, and I don't know, garbage. And at the same time, unitary vision, where you have one taste and enjoy everything as it is. Even garbage has its place, you know. Even shit, we need shit. It's an important part of the natural cycle, right? And it might even be useful for fertilizer manure, not to mention we need to get rid of the wastes. So what's keeping you from right now? So that's, once you have 
the first point of the view, then you get to practice the non-meditation of seeing through what's keeping you from it right now. It doesn't mean you have to go back to that or have it again. It's like, what do they say? You can't be a virgin again. They say. And we all said, mm, yeah, obviously. But Sappho, the great poet of Lesbos, had something else to say. She said, for a real woman, every time is the first time. That's how. That was a pretty enlightened st statement from a, whatever she was, you know. <laughs> lady of the, an island in Greece a very long time ago. So I hope we're communicating. First moment, only moment. That's all there is, this moment. Both God's eye and human eye at the same time. So maybe the eye through which I see God is the eye through which he sees me, as Meister Eckhart said. So if you're a Buddhist, you can make, translate that into Buddha if you want, but no real need. That's what non-dual awareness means. It's in you and you're in it, and you know, sometimes one's in foreground and one's in background. You can't be one all the time, otherwise you can't function. But if you're separate all the time, you lose some um, subtle functions. You never relax the clenched selfness. So it's a dance of doing and being, the dance of life. Thank you for listening to Lama Suryadas's Awakening Now Hour. We very much appreciate your support and hope you will continue by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash suryadas and link to the donate button or go to the amazon.com link for all of your purchases. Namaste. Oh